What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Will, and this week I have an episode that I have been looking forward to recording for quite a long time now. Uh, this week I'm talking to Jordan Fields, friend of the pod, and Lucy Skinner. Um, Jordan and Lucy are a lovely couple uh, who I met in the Upper Valley of New Hampshire, and uh, Lucy Uh, Last year, when I was a first-year med student, she was a fourth-year med student, so she's now a resident doctor. And uh, Jordan uh, is also a – well, he's not also. He is a Ph.D. student, uh, and he will soon be a doctor, so they're going to be a big two-doctor family. I don't know why I'm saying doctor like that. Uh, But um, they're a wonderful, wonderful couple of people. And they both also happen to hold the male and female fastest times on the Dartmouth 50. Um, those come with some caveats, which we talk all about in the episode. But um, these two crazy kids ran really, really fast times on the Dartmouth 50. I think it's really cool that they're a couple and they hold this. Uh, they hold the women's and the men's records. That's very cool to me. Uh, and they also have... They both have really strong roots in uh, in this area. They both have a deep love and a deep connection to the trail and its history. For those of you who don't know, the Dartmouth 50 is a 50-mile stretch of Appalachian Trail, uh, the first 50 miles of AT going northbound in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, it is maintained by the Dartmouth Outing Club, hence the name, the Dartmouth 50. Uh, and it's a really competitive and classic ultra route um, in New Hampshire. Uh, it's a spectacular one, and it's really cool to have both of these guys on to talk about their efforts. Um, so in this uh, in this episode, Lucy joins us for the first bit. We talk about her effort, uh, and then Jordan and I talk about a bunch of other things, including his run, um, the history of the Dartmouth 50, Uh, And we dip into fastest known time and some of our thoughts and feelings about the sport of FKT generally and um, and some of the some of maybe the shortcomings and how it has taken um, taken something away from what what trail efforts used to look like. And um, it's a really interesting conversation. I hope it doesn't come across that we're uh, that we're dunking on FKT too much, but um, we really think that the people who are over at FKT are doing their best to uh, to run a good operation over there. But um, it's uh, it's a really interesting conversation, and I think there are uh, there are a lot of a lot of things that have been gained and a lot of things that have been lost through FKT, and I think Jordan uh, is able to articulate that really well, and those are feelings that I agree with. So if you're coming after Jordan, come after me. This was originally going to be a two-part episode with uh, my friends Noah and Holly, uh, Noah Jenis and Holly O'Hara. Uh, we, I ran the 50 non-competitively, like not racing, but I ran the 50 with those guys this past fall. And so my idea was, all right, I'll, I'll do half an episode with Jordan and Lucy talking about sort of speed runs of the 50, and then I'll do half an episode of just me, Noah, and Holly shooting the shit about our effort and sort of talking through a more a more leisurely effort on the 50 and how cool that is too. Um, but it turns out that uh, scheduling all that is really hard 
And uh, this episode also is pushing two hours already uh, just with Lucy and Jordan. So I would love to get Noah and Holly on at a different time. Uh, I'm still going to work to try to do that. But this episode is dedicated to the to the speedy people on the 50. And as you will hear, um, Lucy is not with us in the room. She is coming to us over Zoom. So Lucy and uh, Jordan both live in Idaho now. Uh, Lucy's doing her residency out there in family medicine, which is super cool. Um, but Jordan has come back to the Upper Valley for just this week. And so uh, he and I are sitting in a classroom chatting and Lucy zoomed in uh, to join the conversation for the first bit. Uh, I had a great time talking to both of them and I hope you guys enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And real quick, guys, before we get to the episode, let me tell you about a little product that I use on all of my long runs called Infinite Nutrition. Uh, Infinite is a total nutrition powder that you mix into your water and you drink during ultra-long efforts, and you are all set to go. It's got all your protein, all your carbs, all your hydration, all your salt, all your caffeine. Um, I can't speak highly enough of infinite nutrition i have been using them for the past four years you know whether it's my unsupported 48 record my supported 48 record or my unsupported long trail record every time i've been doing a big effort for the last four years i have been using basically 100 percent infinite uh, it has really stepped up my game it makes nutrition so simple and i can't speak highly enough of it uh, so right now, Infinite is having a an offer, special offer for my podcast listeners. Head over to their website, uh, linked in the podcast notes, uh, but Infinite Nutrition, and uh, use code from the backcountry, all one word, to get 15% off your entire order. That also includes their custom blends, and you can set up a free consultation with them to help you find the custom blend that is right for you. Uh, so go check out Infinite. I love them. It's a great company. And with that, Jordan, Lucy, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. I always have a great time talking to you guys. Um, I always learn something, and um, I miss you guys. Miss miss you guys being up here in the uh, in the Upper Valley. Um, hope you guys enjoy the episode, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Peace. Good. Um, yeah, so here today to talk about the Dartmouth 50 eventually. First, several updates. One, we now have a Dr. Skinner, and we're streaking our way towards Dr. Fields. Double doctor. Um, and and you guys no longer, you know, previously staples of the Upper Valley uh, outdoors community, no longer uh you're now in uh in the big bad idaho um how are things how are you guys settling in that's great yeah i don't want to speak for lucy but it's been fantastic i mean we (laughs) missed the upper valley i'm back in the upper valley now with will here recording together and uh it's definitely exciting to be back here but it's nice to have some new places to explore and um i think we've both kind of enjoyed enjoyed just a new scene, different flavor. You know, it's very different, but 
um, we've already met a ton of people who really enjoy being out there running, biking. Um, the outdoor community there is very strong. So what do you think, Lucy? Do you agree? Yeah, it's great. Not as many trees, but a lot of trails. So it's yeah. a nice place to live if you like to trail run. So yeah, or I do I do miss the technicality of the east. The west is definitely a little bit more buffed mm. out. So I seek out the very most not always trails. not not everywhere. No, no, no. Really just the foothills near Boise. Yeah. But there's They're one like area that's very technical, which I seek out and drag mm-hmm. Lucy too. Sure. <laughs> so I've always wondered, like, you know, West Coast in the in the less technical spots, is it th- when you're racing or going for time there, are you just a lot more reliant on on f- like straight fitness or do you like do you do you feel like there's a certain amount of getting away with like being really technically proficient out east and you don't have to be necessarily like quite as fit or is that am I making that up? I would actually say that out west you can be really fast mm-hmm. and not very fit mm, and do well so you can have really good leg speed you can be a, a track guy cross country guy who has a relatively poor aerobic base but you can do pretty well up to say 30k on the trails when they're smooth because you just have that efficiency at sub six or seven minute miles um Jordan's just saying that because he got beat by a roadie in a local trail race. <laughs> He's like, it's not technical enough out here. I almost <laughs> got <him>. road runners. <laughs> New nemesis. It's good. Was it in like an organized race or was it just like you guys went out and raced each other? Yeah, it was this race called the River of No Return Ultra in Chalice, Idaho. It's 30K. Um, we don't need to focus on it too much, but <laughs> he went out like a bat out of hell. I was like, well, I'm not doing that. And um, I reeled him in. He was like six minutes up at one point. I reeled him back in and lost by 18 seconds. Ooh. So I almost got him, but the race finished on a one and a half mile pavement downhill. So gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Nordic skier is going to lose to a guy who ran for the University of Oregon every time on that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and Lucy, how is how is the transition been from med school to, to resident doctor? Um, well, the work is way better than being a med student because you actually get to do things, which I like. Um, but it's a lot more hours, which I don't like as much. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's all about, you know, the little things. This is a great place to live if you work a lot and only have a little bit of time to get out because we have like 200 miles of trails right out our back door. So it's like nice to just have that. So that part yeah. I like. Lucy runs or bikes to work every single day. That's pretty sweet. Sometimes through the trails. So Yeah, it's um, nice uh, amazing commute. I often take a picture to remind myself like, wow, this is an amazing commute. <laughs> it's like <laughs> up the beautiful foothills, so it's yeah, pretty This happy. is the official beginning of our recruitment of Will Peterson to the Family Medicine Residency <laughs> at Full Circle Health in Boise, <laughs> Idaho. Will's insistent that he wants to do emergency medicine, but he's going to come uh, around. He's going to come full circle. Yeah, that's been changing. That's been changing quite a bit. Oh, we're going to have to delve uh, into that. But yeah, we'll we'll talk about it in a bit. But even if I came there, we would only overlap for a year and then you guys would leave me again. We might not be very far away. Mm-hmm. I think we'll be nearby. It, right. It's so worth it. We should have come here. Yeah, come full circle. Are there any, are there any rotations in the, in that area? 
Yeah, um, we just had um, a Geisel student, Brendan Barth, come stay with us for a month and he did a rotation here. So if you okay. want to do it, we can make it happen. Yeah. All right. All right. Mm-hmm. You got a second bedroom. Don't be a stranger. <laughs> yeah. Is that how how far are you from uh from where you work? Like are what what is the what's the run bike commute like? Um, we rotate at a couple different hospitals, but it's like it's kind of perfect. It's like three to four miles, depending on the hospital. So and you can make it longer or not if you're tired, like me. Yeah, yeah. So but that's sweet. it's it's a good mm-hmm. The mileage adds up, you know, yeah. three or four yeah. miles each way every day. It's a decent week. That's a decent week. That's yeah. volume. Yeah. Uh, so while we have Lucy here, I want to talk about the 50, which you did. Uh, you did the uh, women's unsupported and overall record as far as the FKT website is concerned uh, back in 2021 or 2020. Yeah, I can't remember. 2020. 2020 yeah yeah pandemic september 2020 yeah oh yeah and i should mention i'm I'm sure i'll mention this in the in the intro but like the it's the the records on the 50 are, are messy and we'll get into all of that but you know for for the sake of this podcast i'm claiming to have the the male and female fastest known times for the for the dartmouth 50 with me on this podcast uh and a lot of just like knowledge about the upper valley and and love for that trail. And I, I think the Dartmouth 50 deserves its own uh, conversation. So that's what we're doing today. Um, but you bodied this uh, trail in like 12 and a half hours uh, while in med school back in 2020. And um, I know I personally went out this fall, uh, not trying to, not trying to break your record, but just like coming I, w- I was chasing down some friends and I, I started a couple hours after them on, on this route. And I wanted to see just like, how, how long can I hold Lucy's pace? And <laughs> by, by the time I got to mile 15, I was like 20 minutes behind your pace. And I was like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> she's so fast. So tell, tell us about, uh, tell us about where you were at. First of all, like, during that time in your sort of running career, had you ever done something that long and what, what pushed you to go take a crack at it? Um, I can't remember if I had done something that long, maybe not. It might've been my first one over, over 50 K, <clears throat> but I think the, that route is really special to me for many reasons. One is that I grew up right on that section of trail and Hanover and, like the section from the ski way back. I remember growing up as a little kid, my dad used to do that with our dog all the time. And then the first time I hiked it with him was the last time he did it. So we did it together. And that was like my freshman year of high school. And then um, I've kind of done it many times since. And then Moose Lock was the first mountain I ever went up. And it was in a backpack carried by my dad. (laughs) And then so it was just like connecting the, all these this trail that I knew so well and like doing the smarts cube section I had done so many times and um, and being able to jog to the start from home was just like really cool. And then I had my family and Jordan came and picked me up at the end. So I think the 
this section just really spoke to me because it was like, I knew every turn except for what that section between 25A and 25C, which I got a little turned around on, but you know, all the sections close to home um, were just really special to me. And then Moose Lock. So that was what inspired me to do like this route, which was the longest route I had done. And I think I can't remember. I think it was like the pandemic. And I don't know, we were just like, trying to find meaningful routes. I think Jordan had, you were about to do the hut traverse, maybe. But I was like, no, I think this feels like the right thing. So yeah, and I probably been running a lot. But you know, because it felt it, it felt real, it felt good. So I was like, oh, I must have been in shape. I don't think it would feel like if I did it now. But um, and I just knew the trail so well that it like made it really fun. So yeah, I perhaps I, I jumped the gun a little bit, but do you want to give the people either of you can do this just an overview of what the Dartmouth fifty is and and what the what the trail encompasses through that section? Yeah, I can jump in here. The Dartmouth fifty is so named because it's the 50 miles of the Appalachian Trail that is maintained by the Dartmouth Outing Club. Um, For those that aren't familiar, the Dartmouth Outing Club is the oldest outing club in the United States. It was founded in 1909, and it's a very cool organization that has a lot of different uh, wings. So there's um, a Dartmouth Mountaineering Club. There is the Dartmouth Nordic and Alpine ski teams were originally part of the Dartmouth Outing Club, including the ski jumping team that existed through the 1970s. Um, and there are also are the bait and bullet arm, which is, um, hunting and fishing. And then there is, um, cabin and trail and the cabin and trail group, um, who affectionately call themselves chubbers, um, which I always find funny. Uh, they maintain that section of the Appalachian trail, which begins at the Dartmouth outing club, um, office which is in robinson hall right off the dartmouth green and continues up and over velvet rocks which is the first elevation right outside of hanover and it drops down into etna up over moose mountain which is a long ridge line um so the first 10 miles go to the summit of the of southern moose mountain and that's a kind of continuous slight uphill for about 2500 feet of total gain and then you go along moose mountain ridge to the north summit which is a nice kind of rolling section steep dive down to um goose pond road climb up the backside of holtz ledge which is where the dartmouth skiway the alpine area where the dartmouth ski team races and where dartmouth students have learned to ski since the 1960s um descend the skiway and then you begin an ascent of smarts mountain which is a 3200 foot mountain which i know is not going to sound like much if we have any western listeners but remember that we're going from zero here so um, that's another big climb up Smarts down into this amazing wilderness area between Smarts Mountain and Cube, which is a little shorter than Smarts, but no less impressive, kind of a exposed top. And that wilderness area in between has an old abandoned town called Quintown. So there's a lot of cool history in that region. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like, it's just, is it just retaken by the woods now? Yeah. Is there like buildings still out there and stuff? There are, and there is in fact a very unique building you should try to go find sometime called the, uh, it's called like the mystery concrete structure or something. 
There's a, there's some articles about it online. I'll send it Not to, to mention the Hexacuba shelter with the Penta Privy. Exactly. So not so to be missed. The Dartmouth Outing Club also maintains the shelters along the section of the trail and they build um, the privies that go along with these shelters. And the, the most famous of which is the Penta Privy, a five-sided privy in uh next to the hexacuba shelter we yep. have a we have a poster of the pentaprivy in our bathroom in, in boise to make us remember um <laughs> so you descend down cubes uh excuse me cube to uh route new hampshire route 25a and then you kind of go through this torturous up and down rolling section um which is about 10 miles it should be flat in your mind relative to the rest of the profile but it still has about three thousand feet of elevation gain in those 10 miles yep Nothing's flat in New England, as those of us who have run here know. And then you arrive at the base of Moose Lock, and you have to go up the Glen Cliff side, which um, is about perfectly um, almost 4,000 feet of gain in a single climb. And then from there, the the route goes down the um, Gorge Brook Trail to the Moose Lock Ravine Lodge, which is a Dartmouth outing club lodge there um we'll circle back to this but the route that northern part of the route has been run differently at different sections um in time but that is how the route is run yeah for now i'll also say that i i didn't learn this until i started looking at the 50 i believe that the uh that glencliff whether you're going southbound or northbound glencliff is the second largest ascent or descent on the entire appalachian trail for like really? two thousand miles, the first behind Katahdin, behind, behind Katahdin, yeah, it's it's larger. Wow. It's a larger continuous ascent than, uh, than, uh, what's the trail? Than Osgood going up from Pinkham Notch That's to incredible. Madison. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It makes me love it even more. It was already my favorite trail in the whites, and it <laughs> definitely is. So if you haven't been to Glencliff, it's a must. And if you start on the pavement, it's a perfect VK. Mm. Five, there aren't many of those out here. No, nope. five kilometers, thousand meters a gain. It's perfect. So it's pretty sweet and nice, nice and flat too. Not technical at all. Um, yeah, exactly. It's perfect for those cross country runner types who are looking to get into running. Yeah, um, that is a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's the overview of the trail. Um, sorry, that took a little bit longer. Than oh no, that's great. Um, Lucy, I know you got to run here in a few minutes. So let's get let's get some more thoughts out of you here um well i'll let you take lead what are you else are you curious in okay well i'm i'm curious on many logistical things about sort of on maybe this is too general but unsupported like 50 to 100 milers in general i've been like looking at and trying to figure out how to do better how how do you pace something like that out and like what are logistically like what are you doing for water? What are you doing for food? What what works well for you during these kinds of things? I feel like I'm like the least thoughtful person about this stuff, but I brought a water filter. I didn't think about pacing. I just like had fun, kind of mm-hmm. went like fun, fun pace. I stopped and filtered water and yeah, took time to do that and didn't really worry about it. And I brought like weird snacks and corn, whatever I had in the house, corn chips and Oreos and uh, cliff bars and um, maybe some gummies. But I remember, I I feel like 
I just have a such a soft spot for Oreos on these. <laughs> and they've just gotten me out of like that. so many deep holes. <laughs> and you know, I owe a lot to Oreos. So they they took me far on this one. Um you but have, like, yeah. PB and J's with you, Lucy. What was your I think I brought yours? one and I like couldn't eat it. And so I just ate Oreos and corn chips That's and insane. like random bars that I found in the house. But yeah, yeah, I didn't like calculate calories. Or I just like filled my backpack with random snacks. And yeah, there's a lot of wa- there's a lot of water on the route, so that was good. Mm-hmm. Um, I did. I filtered, unlike some other people who then got Giardia, not <laughs> naming any names. <laughs> Circle back to that decision later. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, one of the cool things about Lucy's effort, which I think she's kind of alluding to here, is that it was not something she had been dreaming about for her whole life or that she'd been planning on every day since the beginning of 2020. It was kind of like, oh, Jordan, you're doing this long effort. You know, I think I kind of want to do my own thing. And what was it you like woke up like two days before and you're like i'm gonna run the 50 in two days yeah maybe like a week it was like a week i had been thinking about it like oh before i leave hanover i have to do that route because it's such a Mm -hmm. cool route and then i was like yeah i might as well do it and had a weekend and then i think i decided a few days before it so that i like stopped running to taper (laughs) and then (laughs) (laughs) So, oh my God. Please tell fo- give folks some context um, for your proximity to this route growing up and on the day of the event. I already did that, right? Didn't I? No. Well, like Lucy's Lucy's childhood home is forty meters from the Appalachian Trail. Yeah. Um, that is and included we in the dark. Go on thing. the trail like every day, and we run there up. every single day that we've been he- living here as adults. Lucy probably and as a there kid, most days as a child. Yeah, we would hike up to the shelter there like all the time with my dog and my childhood dog who is gone now. Her ashes are spread out along the trail and it's just like a really special section to me. So that um, and I just yeah, like I said, I knew it really well and that made it more meaningful. And I think, yeah, that's kind of what inspired me. And you're only one mile from the start. So you just got up one morning. Yeah. I got up, just... dog to the start, and then did the thing. Took off. That's so sweet. Mm-hmm. So yeah. did you have a time or a record in mind when you were starting out? Or was it just, I'm going to go out and do this as fast as I can? Or was it even like as fast as I can? Was it just, I'm going to go run this at a fun pace? And like, what what was your mindset time-wise going into it? Um, one second, let me let the dog in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I just wanted to finish it, I think, because I hadn't done a 50 miler. But then in the back of my head, I was like, hmm, well, I could just keep an eye on Joffrey's times because I know he had the record. (laughs) But then I was like, to Jordan, I was like, I don't think I can, can get it. Like, I mean, um, but I just like had it in the back of my head. Just like, oh, I think he was about here at the Summit of Smarts. or, um, But then I was like, I don't really want to think too much about it because I don't want it to be about that. I want it to be about the route. Um, I'm sure Joffrey could go back and I know he had quite the quite the time out there 
on his first go at it. So I'm sure he could go give it a good run now. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Joffrey is a, is a local legend of the Upper Valley. He's been on the podcast. Oh, good. Thank yeah. goodness. Well, if you don't know, go back and listen to that episode. It's a must. Um, he's a true <laughs> legend of this region. And uh, he had the unsupported record for the 50 before Lucy. I don't believe there was a, a known women's unsupported record. Is that true, Lucy? When no, but then I was also like, there's probably some, you right. know. There, that's why I said known. There probably was someone. We'll go back into the history at some point, but it's likely that there, in fact, was a record. Sure. Um, I feel like my but, biggest motivator was that I didn't want the sun to set on me. <laughs> I have to put my headlamp back on, but I didn't have to. So that was good. What about what about your playlist? How was that? A motivator? Oh, man. I had some good 90s rap playlist mm. and it just hit the spot, you know? Uh, Any tracks that stand out that you can give our listeners? I'm trying to remember what. I feel like it was just kind of the usual Um. Like uh, random, you know, rap music that just hits the spot sometimes with some assorted other things. I think I put on some like different kind of strange songs that I liked at one point in my life and thought would be fun to relive. But it was nice. I had never really run with music before, but it was definitely nice in some of the low, low points to have a motivator. Tell me about the low points because I like I've gone through your splits. And one thing that I found incredibly remarkable was that they were just so consistent. It was like, you know, they, they, they got a little bit slower throughout the effort, but it was like well in proportion with like the, you know, when Jordan was talking about the, the layout of this route, it gets, if you're going northbound, it gets progressively harder as you go, which I think is another unique part of this route. Like your, your splits were just so consistent from like an effort level perspective did you have any any massive lows uh did you have any massive highs and like what uh what took you through those um i think i had uh i i remember i don't know if you i know you've both done this descent but the descent coming the backside of smarts and it's just like really nice and you're just i don't know (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, smooth, buttery. Smart, it's smooth. And I remember feeling like, wow, this is so fun. And I think I was like just about at halfway. Um, and then I think I had a low in that section between the where it's kind of flat. And there's way more climbing than you think, like 25A to 25C. Um, yeah, that was a low point. And then... I felt good going up Glencliff, but then coming down, my legs just hurt a lot. And I was like, okay, mm. I'm ready to be done. I'm hungry. I'm tired. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was no, no like um, insurmountable lows. There was more like, oh, kind of my leg, my legs hurt, but got to keep going. It's helpful to know exactly what's coming too. So mm-hmm. that, I think that was like helped me. Yeah, definitely. Did you did you get anything at the at the ravine lodge, or did you just get picked up and? and I think it oh, was. Oh wait, it was COVID. Close. It was close yeah, but yeah. we we went to um samurai soul food after, which was Ooh, really good. nice. Have you been there? I don't think I have. Oh, it's like, a, it's a must. Fairly Vermont samurai soul food. Fairly yeah. among the best restaurants in the Upper Valley. What kind of 
food is it? Asian fusion. Okay. Yeah. Local beers. I'm in. It's a good spot. Yeah. It's really good. Really good. Yeah, Correct. It's our favorite. Um, the, the tough part about doing it in 2020 was that the road to the Moose Lock Ravine Lodge was also closed. And so Lucy completed this 50 mile mm. run and then had to walk a mile and a half out. <laughs> um, so that was the part I was most impressed with it is that she didn't want to be carried out. She just wanted to, she was like, she was like walking faster than I was. I was impressed. She was dropping us in the walkout. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Fact check. True. Yeah. yeah. That's sweet. Uh, yeah. Do you, do you have any other, any other thoughts for Lucy Jordan? Yeah. I, what, um, what's your best memory when you reflect on the 50 and is it something that you would ever consider doing again? Oh, good questions. Best memory. I don't know. I just, it was such a great day. Like I remember the start, like with the headlamp, but I was starting in the section by our house. And so I knew every turn, like just what felt like I could have done it without a light. I knew it so well. Um, And then coming up Moose Mountain and getting like a beautiful sunrise. That was really pretty. Um, And then coming down smart remember feeling like oh this is so fun um and then coming up moose lock was really fun too because but then going up moose lock is really fun well like getting to the top because i was like i did it and then i remembered i had to go down which was a long long descent down uh, yeah a lot longer than i remembered um yeah it was just a really i think the whole thing was really fun um, and would I do it again? Yeah, I would definitely do it again. I don't know if I could go as fast, but now that I'm a washed up resident, but He's selling yourself I would definitely short. do it. This is, it's yeah. this is called Skinner sandbagging. They're professionals at this. Don't believe a word she says. I don't believe no. it. <laughs> um, I, would, I would love that route. I would definitely do it again. Um, would you guys ever do it as a team? Uh, Jordan would be way ahead. No, I would definitely. You. We we run together all the time. We have lots of yeah. long runs together. We yeah. would definitely do that. Um, we've almost done a fifty mile run together. We run rim to rim to rim together. Um, so that's forty five miles, forty eight miles, rim to rim to rim. And yeah. then we ran um this route across all of Baxter State Park mm. together, which was what was that? Twenty years. Oh, I guess that was only 30 miles, but then we had a 45 mile bike shuttle back. So that's why I was thinking it was mm-hmm. an epic. Yes. Mm-hmm. That was a Lucy idea. <laughs> that's a pretty I, sweet yeah. idea. I'm known for really good, bad ideas. Yeah. Lucy's a schemer and uh, a dreamer. Definitely. I'm, I'm along for the ride. Learning <laughs> so. planes, but I drive him along. Mm. Lucy, do you, do you need to go? I know you said you had to go. Um, I think I have a few minutes, but. Okay, great. Sweet. I can let let you can turn to Jordan. No. As the new before we get there, while I have you both here as authorities on the route, Mm. uh, I want to bring you some controversy. Um, So earlier this fall, I did the fifty with my med school pals, uh, and I started a couple hours after them, and. I thought that Noah knew what he was doing when it came to the route. Evidently, because he went here for undergrad and he's literally been here his whole life. Evidently not. So they played a little bit and unintentionally played fast and loose with the route mm. a little bit. And so I want to I want to check with you guys and see if this actually counts as doing the 50. 
one, they thought it started at the edge of the woods. And so mm. they didn't do the road run at the beginning. Yep. Two, they took Papoose down the ski way because they like got off the AT. Uh, Easy mistake to make, but definitely not the route. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I've been telling them. I tell them, like, I'm, I've been telling them they need to go back and and run it, uh, run like those sections, so they can piece it together at least. I would say that the the Dartmouth 50 is not one of those routes that people are sticklers about, and it's yeah. about the spirit of of the route and your intention sure. in doing it. And I so I think I'm going to give them credit for doing the 50, um, but they did they did miss. A fair amount of the course, <laughs> not a fair amount. They yeah. missed. They it's missed like a few miles. They missed. Yeah, exactly. One twenty fifth of the course. Yeah. So, um, I'd say not the end of the world. I'm still pretty impressed that they just did that off the couch. Yeah, like, I need to get them. Awesome. I the, the original idea was to have this be like a two part podcast where I'd have Perfect. you guys on and then them. I don't think they're going to come on because it's hard to schedule with those two. But like Holly, her longest thing before it was a road marathon. And Noah's longest thing before it was a Pemi loop. So it was very cool to see them both just like send it. I think that's awesome. You should get them on. You should yeah. convince them. Come on, pin them down. Yeah. Their perspectives would be really cool because um, I'll just jump in here with one quick thing. The cool thing about the Starmouth 50 route um, is that it's not just an FKT route. In fact, it is primarily not an FKT route. Mm-hmm. It's um, a route that is completed twice a year by Dartmouth undergrads and they hike the route in groups of four you create a team with your friends and there are aid stations along the way that are set up by the dartmouth outing club and it takes most groups 24 to 30 hours to do this they're just hiking um most of these people do not train at all so they are off the couching this in a way that is seriously off the couching it's like they may have been wasted the night before and then they go and do this it's honestly very inspiring and it's cool that it is so popular it's mm-hmm. so popular that there is a lottery to get a spot in this hike and um i think this just kind of speaks to the culture here at the dartmouth outing club that like doing a 50 mile hike is a rite of passage mm-hmm. you know rather than um some of the other debauchery that takes place mm-hmm. at dartmouth and elsewhere yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this brings me to something that I, I just remembered i wanted to ask you both about which is jordan's decision to not submit uh, his effort to FKT. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about what led into you making that decision and then get Lucy's perspective too about, you know, if you could go back in time, would you still have submitted your your effort to the FKT page for the Dartmouth 50? And in your guys' opinion, should it even be a route on the FKT page? Or is it sort of like, you know, there's... Like, for example, I look at a lot of the the 4,000-footer FKTs, and there's, like, one name on it, and it's clearly not the fastest anyone's ever run it. I'm like, well, that's just, like, a fake record. Like, is that how we should be looking at the 50? What are your guys' thoughts on all of that? I'm sure I'll start. Um, I think that my decision not to record the record on fastestnotime.com was more uh, a personal one. And it's not that I don't think that we should keep track of these things. I think it's pretty cool that we do. Um, And I think in many cases, even though those times on the random 4,000 footers are not the fastest time that's ever been run on them, 
just putting up a time is a courageous act and it might inspire other people to go out for it and set a goal, which I, which I think is pretty cool. So um, my reasoning for not submitting it is that a large part of my own personal journey over the last few years has been to detach success from results. And part of that has culminated in this effort. And I really wanted this effort to be about this place and the people that I met in this place in the Upper Valley on this trail specifically. Um, And so I made a list of all the friends that I had met in the Upper Valley and specifically shared time with on the trail. And I wanted to think about them and run for them and detach success from the outcome. And doing that kind of required telling myself that no matter what time I ran, it wasn't going to be reported mm-hmm. as a record. Um, so that was my main motivation. I will also say that I disagree with the way that fastest known times have been policed more broadly by what I think is a relatively like self-appointed and arbitrary group. So that might ruffle some feathers, but um, I've had some frustrating experiences with with um, fastest known time in the past. And so not submitting this record is what resonated most with me. And it's not a, I don't want to, to like discourage people from reporting their times. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to like set an example. Sure. It just was what felt most true to the experience I wanted to have. Yeah, definitely. I want to, if you're willing to talk about it at some point, I'd love to get back to to sort of uh, your thoughts on FKT generally. But before that, mm-hmm. I want to uh, get Lucy's perspective on on the 50 as a, as an FKT route and sort of having a leaderboard for it, like a public leaderboard for it that's not lore of the Dartmouth Outing Club. Uh, as, as someone who's on a notable figure on that list. Yeah, I, I, don't, I feel like when I did it, it was like they were... FKT was a little bit less controversial. Um, but notably, if I had, like, for me, what was after I submitted my time, they made this rule that you, like, can't run into anyone you know, and you can't, like, if it's unsupported, you can't, like, see a familiar face out there. And, like, I remember running into, like, random friends on the trail and then also, like, my parents like drove with Jordan drove around and like cheered me on as I crossed a road. And then like, I remember Jordan like saw me while I was filtering my water and it was really nice. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think it like made my time, like just to disagree with their practices. Like I actually probably stopped and chatted with him for a while. So like, I don't think I got like a huge time boost, but I got an emotional benefit from seeing friendly faces. So like, I think if that rule had been in place when I submitted mine, I might not have just because I was like, that's, I think it's, that's so dumb. I remember running into like some high school friends out there and they were like, Oh yeah. Like go, go. And, (laughs) and um, like, if I had, that wouldn't count because I happened to run into people I knew on my backyard trail like that. Right. Really upset. Um, But I think, yeah, I didn't really like think about it too much. I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll submit this and maybe someone else will go for it. And 
Um, but I also think the history, I, when I submitted it, I knew that it wasn't like the official record because that trail has been run for so long that there are so many people who've done it and aren't on there and who've run fast times. And mm-hmm. so it's not like, it's yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I think having one body that is like policing these efforts that are supposed to be meaningful to you or to your community is mm-hmm. makes it takes away from the experience. So, yeah, I'll just jump in there with, um, Another part of my motivation to not record this record was I did a lot of research about the history of this record beforehand um, to try to figure out what the actual fastest known time was, but also just to gain a greater understanding for the history of the route. And and I will say that maybe I'm unique in this, but that is a huge motivator for me is understanding of both the history of the place and the people that have shared that place. And when I spoke to a lot of the folks who were really the experts on this route, one thing that was consistent for them was that it was not about the record. And the route was about the experience that you had out there. And in particular, um, Bernie Waugh, who is one of the, um, what's the word? He's really just kind of a living legend in the Dartmouth Outing Club, especially among the cabin and trail folks. He is graduated in 1970, I believe. He's hiked the um, Dartmouth 50 at least six times, but probably more latest time he did it, um, was continuously was mm-hmm. when he was 60. So wow. Pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, and he described his experiences to me out there. And the last thing he wrote in his email to me when I had been talking about him, this talking about the route this summer was he said, as we say in the Appalachian trail, cause he's through hiked it a couple of times, um, hike your own hike. And that's probably a phrase that you've heard too, yeah. having been out there. And it was not something that I had heard actually, because I just don't come from the through hiking world. And it, it actually kind of resonated with me. And it was like, you know, what is this really about? Is this an ego building endeavor? Or is this about having my own experience out there? And the not recording it was the thing that gave me the space to run my own run. Yep. So Lucy has departed us. I'm going to end the recording here and then we're going to start up a new one on Audacity because it's going to have better audio quality. All right, we're back. Lucy has departed from the conversation off to bigger and better things than us rambling about the outdoors. Saving lives. Saving lives. A healthcare (laughs) hero, as they say. Um, But we were talking about... um, We were talking about the FKT page and the 50 and what it means to to hike your own hike as it were or run your own run for the runners in the room of which i'm not one um <laughs> yeah right will <laughs> uh so i want to dive in more into uh your thoughts about fkt because i think it's an interesting conversation uh that we uh don't have a lot in the fkt community we just kind of you know it's a we I feel like a lot of it is chalked up as like, ah, oh, it's a new sport. It's developing. Like, uh, it's going to progress. It's not going to be linear, but, you know, it's going in the... I, I feel like a lot of people chalk it up to just like, it is what it is right now and it's growing and there are going to be growing pains. But I don't know. FKT is <laughs> an interesting beast and there's, um, you know, uh, 
I don't know. I'd just love to get some more of your thoughts about your, your experiences with FKT. I know you said that you had some, had some negative things in the past and uh, we'd love to expand more. Yeah. Um, I'd like to start by just saying that like the people who are volunteering or working for fastestknowntime.com are awesome. And the fact that they're spending their time to do this in the service of others is a really cool thing. And even if they're getting paid menial amounts by outside, like this is not a profession. They're doing this out of the goodness of their heart. So I think Mm -hmm. that's really cool that that exists in our community. And I feel really grateful for that. Um, That said, I think what I have a greater problem with is not any individuals or even the organization, but rather the approach. And the approach is that trying to strip down these experiences to the time, right? And there's this there's this sense of kind of like conquering a route or just doing it to death. Mm. And I think something is lost in that approach that was integral to the origination of running routes like this for fast times. And that spirit that I'm alluding to is uh, in that kind of shared history of experience in the mountains. And, And so I'm talking in kind of abstract terms here, but let me get a little bit more specific. And, and just say that, for example, on, on this Dartmouth 50, it was really important for me that my focus was on the memories that this trail had brought me, all the good memories, all the people that had been brought into my life, including you, Will, um, via this trail. And running it alone didn't really feel like the best way to honor that. Mm-hmm. And so meeting my friend Peter Howe, who's been one of my closest friends in the mountains here in New England and out of the mountains, um, a, true, a true friend in every sense of the word and a, a, and a just empathetic, kind, thoughtful, reflective human being. And so I wanted to meet him at the top of Musalak and finish this route with him. And it felt really meaningful to me. And in the eyes of fastestknowntime.com that would make this a supported effort despite the fact that I carried all of my own food um, did not see anyone for the first 47 miles of the run and um, yeah it just tagging that as supported is like comparing my run to as if I'd had a crew at every single road crossing and carried nothing the whole way, right. which would have been different. My pack at the beginning was relatively heavy. I was carrying um, a liter of water at all times. Even though there was plenty of water, I always carried a liter between. I was carrying like, uh, let's see, four gels an hour times 40 gels, basically. Some pierogies, we'll get back to that. <laughs> um, I, and I was carrying a windbreaker and a hat and gloves and just kind of an emergency blanket things like that and like so I think that the confines imposed on runners by fastestknowntime.com limits the experience that folks can have on trails and I think that trails are a place 
that should be a blank canvas for you to paint your own experience. And um, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that coming from a very competitive Nordic ski background, which is my background, mm-hmm. um, I came to fastest known time world, you know, running routes for time world, because I wanted an experience that was richer than the one that had been distilled down to in Nordic ski racing, perfectly groomed tracks, like timing down to the hundredth of a second, like perfectly timed interval starts, skis that are waxed with hundreds of dollars of wax for every single race. Um, You know, everything is down to a science. And the beautiful thing about this sport when I got into it is that it was still an art. Mm -hmm. And I should note that I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm finishing my PhD right now, so I'm, I'm not like anti-science. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> not that anyone would get that message, but what, I, what I'm just trying to say is there's something that is lost in the approach that fastest known time has taken. There's mm. also something gained, and that gain is potentially um, the fact that we can trust these records, the fact that... Um, yeah, it's easy to share these records. Reliability, basically. But for me, that's not worth the cost of the experience. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, is it is it the fault of of FKT or is it the like is it the fault of FKT the organization or is it the the inevitable uh, sort of necessity of trail running records, you know, like if you're gonna if you're going to have sort of some sort of objective way to to measure records, you know, outside of just having one open, like I I guess my question is like how how would you go about it? if you if you had the magic wand to to design FKT, what what what's the how do how do you structure the leaderboards to to maximize what you feel like this sport should be yeah i think it's a great question um i will start by saying i don't think i'm like the i don't have all the answers Mm -hmm. all right and i don't want to position myself as someone who claims to sure but i do think that it's funny how the decisions made by fastestknowntime.com often are at odds with those of the community consensus. Mm-hmm. For example, the place where this re- thinking started for me was when I ran the Pemi Loop. I ran it, I set out to run it as a you know, recon run for a later attempt. So I started with my friend, Luke Costley. We ran together for the first hour and 20 minutes. Then I said, hey, we're actually doing a pretty decent pace. Let me try to see what the next mile between Bondcliffe and Bond feels like at what I would think of as race pace. Mm-hmm. So I went ahead, and I was like, oh, that felt pretty good. I waited for Luke for five or eight minutes to say, hey, I'm going to go ahead and um, just give this a whirl. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't want to just drop him and be like, see, or like he's wondering where I am. I had to communicate, yeah. right? And so... Um, I had not nearly enough food for that run and I've recounted this story elsewhere so I, I won't go too deeply into it but basically I had you know, a PB&J which I quickly couldn't eat after I started going hard and I had two Cliff Bars, two gels 
um, and I completely ran out of water. So that was the deepest I've ever gone in any singular effort. Like I, it took me so long to recover that from that physically and mentally too. Cause I went to a place where I actually think I physically put myself in danger mm-hmm. of like, I was trying to finish because I felt like I was going to pass out. And if I passed out in the woods, I thought I might just not make it. Sure. I was like, I need to pass out in the parking lot. So someone will help me. So, um, I submitted that FKT, um, as unsupported because I felt like that's, I didn't know the rules basically. Yeah. It was early on, mm-hmm. you know, it's just early on. What year was this? Um, this is 2020 okay, actually. Okay. So, you know, I should have known, but I just didn't really think about it. Sure. Um, so it's my fault. Just want to acknowledge that. But they, um, quickly flagged it and said it was supported and I just don't think that's reflective of my effort out there. Mm-hmm. And I like did that thing unsupported and I went freaking deep on that. Yeah. And, um, if anything, it cost me time. Mm-hmm. No fault of Luke's. He was not running it as a race. Right. But I did wait for him just to communicate, you yeah. know? And so the funny thing is like, there have been a lot of people that have run that route and no one has claimed the record because or they, they say, you know, this is the unsupported record, but in spirit that goes to Jordan Fields. Multiple people who have set the, set yeah, the record yeah, have yeah. said that. And uh, that has just made me reflect on the fact that the community consensus in that run is that my record was unsupported. Right. But yet it's deemed supported. So, again, this is going to sound like it's coming across as a personal vendetta, right? It's not. I don't care. Sure. I really don't care, and I hope I've illustrated that by not even bothering to submit this Dartmouth 50 record. Mm. Um but um, it does lead nicely into your question of, like, what's a better way to do it? Because I think that the way that Fastest No Time has done it is a completely reasonable way. You set the rules. People follow the rules. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is that they, the rules aren't always followed. Like, originally the rules in the FastestNoTime.com where you announce your effort, you're, you're going for the record on the site before you go for it. Yeah. And then you um, go ahead and do your effort, right? And so yeah. I started doing that. No one else does that yeah, in reality. I still do that, but I, but I have noticed that generally it's like a once, – once people hit like a certain social media following, it's like, oh, I don't have to – like I'll just announce this on my Instagram. I won't announce it on yeah. KT. So anyway, I, I, I guess I just – I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this and, and make it sound like I'm just uh, a crotchety old man. Maybe <laughs> I am. But I do think that um, the, the thing that really put me over the edge with this was when they, as Lucy alluded to, said, you can't see anyone you know out there. No one can take a picture of you. Um, and I just really took issue with that because that just, to me, that is like, it eliminates the community aspect of this. And I think that you can do it in a way that like brings in your community, but it's still unsupported. Sure. And they're saying, I, I think, per, honestly, I think my take is that they're, like, worshiping this ideal of mm-hmm. the, like, lone hero out mm-hmm. in the woods alone. No one helped them. Sure. Do you know what I mean? And that's just, like, not my ethos. Yeah. My ethos is no man is an island, especially not me. Sure. Like, I couldn't do this without the the thoughts of other people that, are, that sure. support me and are, like, believing in me while I'm out there. And those thoughts are what 
power me through no more than if someone is out on the trail like they're as real to me when I'm running mm-hmm. as someone who's out there on the trail um, and I get the I guess they get the taking pictures thing because um, they they want to like I don't know I just don't really have a problem with with if they want to promote the sport then right they should probably allow people to have pictures but it just it was frustrating for mm-hmm. me to see the kind of nickel and diming sure of 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 the sport the policing of the sport wow we've really gotten away from the Dartmouth 50 here will well <laughs> it reminds me a little bit though of like when you're talking about the sort of your experience with the pemi loop both of the unsupported records that i've gone after have had similar caveats to them not not mine but like like 2020 i was going for the, the unsupported 48 record and at the time like andrew drummond had the had the Diart- the overall diartissima record but he had like he had some people join because he's also very pro you know pro sharing his experiences and like community building and all of that stuff uh, so he had like a couple people join him for certain sections of it and he had like stashed a battery for himself somewhere otherwise he carried all his stuff and it was like virtually an unsupported hike but first they re- first they moved it from unsupported to self-supported because he stashed a battery for himself and then like again i knew nothing about fkt it was like my first post on the fkt boards was asking like i just because like it it didn't match up with the rules so i was like uh i'm gonna go out on the like i'm gonna go out to do the unsupported 48 i'm gonna have like i'm gonna carry all my stuff but i might have like some people join me at some point and like the fkt people were to being like you can't do that and i was like well he did it, and then they and then they reclass they re reclassified. Yeah, I didn't know him. this story. Yeah, I felt so bad because I was like, up until I made that comment, Drummond's Diartissima was classified as self-supported on the FKT board, and then they re reclassified it as supported because you can't have pacers. <laughs> uh, wow, there's so many examples. Like yeah. this is what I mean. There are a dime a dozen. Like the one that really comes to mind is string bean. I was going to get to that one too, right? for so sure. This one's super relevant to anyone who listens to this podcast, right? String Bean ran an insanely impressive time on the long trail. Like, I know you went faster than it, but like, it remains a mind blowing record to me. Absolutely. Right? Like, just because you went faster doesn't diminish it in my mind at all. Mm-hmm. And he, I believe, accepted water from someone at some point. Yeah, it's like a leader. <laughs> right? <laughs> on the entire trail. So, are you going to discount the other, what is it, 274 miles? Yeah. I don't know how many miles it is. It's close, close, close to enough. that. It's close to that, right? Yeah. You're going to discount all of that time that he was entirely unsupported mm-hmm. because he decided to go for his health right. over endangering himself. Well, and, you know, the like to your point about what the community says, both Drummond's record and String Bean's record were the de facto unsupported records as decided by the community like right. it was like oh yeah those guys basically have it it's just like not in name exactly yeah so it's, it's kind of ridiculous and it, when you when you were talking it, it it kind of hit me like what exactly you're talking about with the spirit of these efforts where you know there, there's nothing wrong with having an effort that's lone cowboy in the woods like if that's the experience you want there's nothing wrong with being paced for every step if that's the experience you want and like having all your stuff carried. But there's there's a huge culture in trail running of 
a self-powered, self-contained sort of um, uh, like unsupported style run where you're also doing it as part of a community. You're also including people and like that's part of what makes trail running so great is like the community involvement even if you're doing something mostly by yourself and the way fkt is structured right now completely obliterates that category of a run right like if you're going for competitive if you're going for competitive stuff on the fkt board you just can't do that because you're going to be classified as supported and someone else can come along and do it way faster if they're paced for every single step exactly pace for every single step someone else carries their food mules etc i just think the supported category is way too broad Mm -hmm. basically but that begs the question of how else do you split it up sure right because i do think it's silly to have 16 categories right like i think we're kind of at the max three is i think actually probably the max yeah well and even on most routes i think self-supported is a ludicrous like, Agreed. So, like, self-supported was created for trails that are too long to do unsupported, like right. the AT. It's like you have to resupply because you can't do it unsupported. And so, like, for most trails, it should really just be supported, unsupported, how you break those up. I agree. I don't know. I, I, I agree. And I think that's kind of where I've landed with – I mean, who, I'm not sure that I will do other fastest known time attempts anymore. I'm actually feeling pretty excited about – racing oh that's awesome head to head and yeah it's moving to a new place it's been an incredible way to meet people mm-hmm. right and i just have felt so welcomed by the idaho running community and that's a feeling that i want to keep having and that's the feeling i had here on the east coast when i moved back um in 2018 too, going to events run by andrew drummond the blackout 10k and other things like that i was like this is what i love yeah you know so i think that maybe that's the answer right is like you go to run fastest times for a certain experience and maybe that experience is somewhat limited by fastestknowntime.com and that's okay and maybe you go to races for a different experience and maybe there's this third category like i just did on the dartmouth 50 where if you want a certain experience go out and do it and whether it's recorded on fastestknowntime.com or an ultra sign up or some other results website Mm -hmm. maybe that's irrelevant because if you've had the experience you want to have that's the ultimate goal. And, and that's where I've landed, and I realize that that sounds um, strange or foreign or impossible to folks. But I think that I just like kind of want to wrap up this fastest known time yeah, discussion yeah. <laughs> with, with the thought that I don't think that there's a way to cleanly say it should be done better, mm-hmm. right? I think the way that they're doing it is entirely reasonable. I think it's restrictive in many ways, but as I just outlined, I think that if you feel that way, like I do occasionally, you can do the experience in another way mm-hmm. and just not report the time. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like you had the experience, you ran the time. Right. Like at least that's my ultimate goal is to get to the place where the effort is about my experience and not about the validation that comes from it. Right. This is, Yeah. This might be a, co- a conversation for another time, but one thing I've always struggled with, with you in particular, <laughs> is that I've never understood how one, how it can, how it can ever 
100% be about the experience when you're going for a record. Like, like how, how it just, it just doesn't click with me. It's like when I, when I think like go for a record, but don't care about the record, just doing it for me. It's like those things just like don't compute. It's like, well, if you're, if you're not going to, if you don't care about the record, then, then like, why, why are you even looking up the record? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't you just run whatever time and, and, and not look into it at all? I don't know. I, but I've, I've never really understood. I've never really understood running, running for speed against records and like being able to detach from caring about beating the record. Like it just, it just seems like an oxymoron. Totally. That is such a fair critique. And, um, here's what I'll say, right. Is I'm not trying to paint myself as some like fountain of ultimate wisdom, (laughs) right. I'm not that I'm a complicated and flawed individual who's trying to plot my own way through this world. Mm -hmm. And part of that has been the realization that the external validation does matter a lot to me. Sure. And a feeling that I don't want it to matter as much to me. So this has been an exercise in trying to demonstrate to myself that I can do this in a way that doesn't require the external validation. Because the alternative was to just never do these things again. Sure. And that didn't sit well with me either, mm-hmm. right? I couldn't continue to do it in the way that I was doing it, but I also didn't like the idea of never doing them again. Mm-hmm. So returning to the experience thing, for me, it feels really good to run fast. Yeah, It feels really good to feel like I am linking steps together in a way that is smooth and efficient and, and honestly, that a lot of people can't do. Like sure. when I'm out there, I'm like, I'm moving really fast over this terrain. Mm. And there's an inherent comparison built into that sentence that I just said, right? Sure. I'm moving faster than a lot of people can. And that does make me feel good. So let's, let's be honest here with the kind of hypocritical points that I'm making. <laughs> I'm not detached from um, comparison as a source of validation. Mm. But I have found that... I truly enjoy the experience of pushing myself and counterintuitively I get more out of myself when it is not about I have to beat X person Mm -hmm. I have to beat this time on the clock when instead my mind turns to all right I'm feeling pretty good I'm running smoothly like I'm linking steps like stay focused like slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Like when I return to those kind of mantras, I run way better. Yeah. Even when I was a competitive Nordic skier and we had a lot of individual start races. So in other sports, they call those time trials, but basically it's you versus the clock. So splits are a really important part of that. Receiving information from your coach that says, Hey, you are in eighth place. You are 35 seconds down on the leader. Right. Um, that kind of information towards the end of my career, I stopped taking splits. Mm. from my coach interesting and when i did i raced way better really interesting because the expectation of that split the fear Mm -hmm. that i might be behind limited me from skiing relaxed Mm. and when you are relaxed like both mentally and physically you're going to get more out of yourself like because your muscles are physically less tense you're using less energy when you're relaxed but also mentally 
because you're able to kind of focus less on having to do it mm-hmm. and the fact that isn't it beautiful that you're able to do it yeah so I know it doesn't make a lot of sense I totally understand it and it's just I can only speak to my own experience no. and it's been helpful for me from both a mental health perspective and a performance perspective super counterintuitively I didn't always expect that performance would come with this attitude sure it was only out of necessity from the kind of state that my mental health was in of putting all this pressure on myself always comparing to others always feeling like I wasn't enough always feeling like I could have done more I could have gone farther I could have gone faster mm-hmm. that it forced me to take a different approach and I just have found that for me that's been a really fruitful approach yeah that's I think there's a lot of wisdom there that I feel like that 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 clears a lot of it up for me that, that oh, was very helpful yeah okay I'm glad because um, it is sometimes hard to express because yeah. it's been a not non-linear path for me I want to make that very clear yeah it's also complicated like it's not it, we're we're none of none of us are are simple and none of us are like None of none of it completely makes sense. Like there, you're not just going to find one way, one method of thinking that that works for every situation in every. I don't know. Uh, yeah, every situation. I guess I don't know. Right. I mean, and I think it's good to return to the fact that motivation and kind of how we conceptualize the challenges that we take on are constructed within a framework that is unique to us Mm -hmm. based on our worldview like let's zoom out to away from the you know 35 listeners of this podcast (laughs) 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 i'm just doing well no 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 you overshot (laughs) (laughs) so let's zoom out from those people that all understand why we might want to set a fast ascent time and go to the population writ large Mm -hmm. they think we're absolutely batshit crazy (laughs) they can't understand why we would even no matter who who had set a fast time no matter how fast we think we could run why we would want to do it at all right they can't even understand that part Mm mm-hmm so I guess that's how my psychology might appear to you. No, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay. We've taken a solid half-hour detour from the 50. Lost all of our 35 listeners. We're down to one, which is my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy's not listening? Come on. Lucy's saving lives, remember? Oh, that's true. Healthcare hero. Okay. Um, so I do want to get to the 50 and the history. Yes. You're a big history guy, which I really like. I, history buff, for sure. I, I love history, uh, but I don't feel like I'm as good at finding it as you are. Mm. Like, 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 where'd you find that this building used to be a bank? <laughs> I ask questions. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a curious guy. Yeah. Uh, and I don't remember where I found out that this building used to be a bank in Montreal and was transported to New Hanover, but <laughs> it did. So um, so tell me about the 50. Where did, it, where did Where does your research start? What's the year? My research. Yeah. So my research on this kind of dates back to a kind of, you know, everyday beginning, mm-hmm. basically, which is that the... Dartmouth ski team, as I mentioned earlier, is the oldest ski team in the country because they started when the Dartmouth Outing Club started in 1909. I did not ski for Dartmouth as an undergrad. I skied for another college that raced against Dartmouth. Um, But I came to Dartmouth as a graduate student, and I knew the coach here. Um, 
both coaches, the men's and women's coach, and they kindly allowed me to come in as a volunteer assistant coach. Mm -hmm. So I worked with the team for my first two years here at Dartmouth. And Dartmouth has, it's a place with a lot of tradition, both within the outing club and, and outside. Yeah. And within the ski team, too. So the ski team runs a, um, a time trial on Mount Musilak, which is probably the longest running mountain race in the United States outside of um, uh, Mount Marathon in Seward, Alaska. Oh, okay. Really? I should check on when the Pikes Peak ascent started, mm-hmm. but this time trial has been run since the 1930s. Wow. Um, we probably only have like real records since the 50s, but even if we go with that date, it's been run twice a year since 1953, as far as I can go back. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. And we have record of every single time that's been run that course since the late 70s, which is over 4,000 unique attempts. Mm-hmm. So um, I got really interested in the history of that event. And um, the coach of the Dartmouth ski team, the men's ski team, Brayton Osgood, also was really interested in it, helped compile these results. And he has hosted them on a uh, a database online now where you can look up all the fastest times that were ever run on the Dartmouth um, Mount Muslock time trial up the Gorgebrook Trail. Cool. So that kind of got me interested, and I'd heard legends of the Dartmouth 50, which is a route that I had known about in my head but never done, never knew anyone that did it, um, besides this one kid, Fabian Stocek, who was a um, skier at Dartmouth in the Czech Republic. Yep. Oh, wait. Before we move on, real quick from yes. the Gorge Brook time trials. Yes, I do want to ask you real quick, like that that route changed, right? Like it's not the original trail anymore. And how did they how did they square that in time trials? So this is why I say that I can't go back further than the 1950s because the original trail was taken out. They originally they had a very steep alpine ski racing trail coming down um, that part mm-hmm. of Mount Musilak. It was the steepest trail in eastern north america oh sick um for most of that period of the first half of the 20th century so steep that in the 1938 hurricane um there was a landslide that took out the ski trail and the gorgebrook trail wow so the gorgebrook trail was rerouted and so if you look at the trail now it kind of goes straight up along gorgebrook Mm -hmm. and then takes a long jog away from the trail and back like almost a mile jog yeah and so that is because of the reroute due to the hurricane. Gotcha. In 38. But, um, so did the original trail just go straight up the brook? I assume. It's hard to find, yeah. really. That was the time when these trails were kind of being built. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? So I think that it basically didn't exist for very long yep. before that point. Or, gotcha. Or they went up the ski trail. I yep. don't know. Um, but even since then, the trail has changed, right, just due to minor changes, mm-hmm. kind of washouts here and there. But most significantly, in 2011, during Hurricane Irene, a large section of the trail was taken out until the trail was rerouted um, to run along the Snapper Trail for a while and then come back. So um, Brayton Osgood, the Dartmouth ski team coach, estimates that it's about a 90-second um, penalty, the oh, okay. new route versus the route, the times that were run before 2011. Gotcha. And so um, I kind of respect the way that the Dartmouth ski team handled it, and they just didn't apply any correction. Yeah. They're just like, this is reality. Yeah, go out and be better than these guys by ninety seconds. Well, I was gonna say, especially, I feel like it's easier to do since it's shorter, or since it's since it's uh, a longer route now. You know, mm. like it would be harder. Yeah, if everyone is just beating the old times. Right. Yeah, it's right. It's easier to kind of accept it as it is, given that it the bar has been raised. Yeah, rather than sure. lowered. Um, 
so I will say the fastest time until last year had been run pre 2011 mm. by was... Chris Freeman, yep. who was a four time Olympian, um, got fourth at world championships two separate times in Nordic skiing, one yep. of the best athletes that the U S has ever had in endurance sport. And, and then some 5k dude from track from the, well, track I'm going to insert myself on. in there real quick. I, 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 <laughs> I went in there and set a, set the, the record, um, at least the modern era record. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I was pretty proud of. That had been a goal f- since I came here. So that was a That's four year so project. Cool. I ran it every year for four years. And then the last year I ran it three times and got better every time. So that was cool. But yeah, then I got my ass whooped by Dan Kurtz, who is, um, a local pro runner runs for Brooks. Great guy. Yeah. I hope that you guys know he, who he is. He's been on the pod. Fantastic. Go listen to his episode. He's a fantastic guy. He's, he's extremely fast. And these kind of like 40 minute uphill runs yeah. are his absolute perfect event. So I was so psyched that he took this on in a serious way mm-hmm. because I honestly think, and I don't know even know if I've told him this, but I think that the effort he put down on that run would have been a top 10 in a world championship style event of a similar distance. Like I would possible. dare anyone else in the United States who ever listens to this podcast and hears this challenge, Andy Wacker or Joe Gray, like come try to beat Dan Kurtz's time on the on the Gorge Brook Trail. It's not gonna be easy. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, so back to the fifty. We've we've detoured yet again. Yep. Um so you're talking about a a, a man who did it in the 70s? Oh, earlier, Bernie Waugh. But yeah. So Dartmouth 50, we'll kind of do an accelerated thing here because now we're, we're going on a 17-hour podcast episode. Dude, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Dartmouth 50 has been run continuously by the Dartmouth Outing Club since the early 70s, Yep. as far as we know. And it originally began as a tradition by members of this cabin and trail group who would spend the summer maintaining the trail and then wanted to hike the trail um, in one go. Yeah. And back then it was just a self-selected group would go and hike it and it was not a popular thing to do. Yeah. And at that time the trail did actually cover the full section of trail that is maintained by the Dartmouth Outing Club, which goes from Kinsman Notch, which is on the north side of Mount Musilock, up the Beaver Brook Trail mm-hmm. to the summit of Musilock, down Glencliff, mm. and then proceeds on the route described earlier all the way back to Robinson Hall on campus. So a couple of key things here. The route was later changed to finish at the Musilock Ravine Lodge, which is this large lodge. It's a beautiful place um, that's run by the college, Mm -hmm. staffed by students um, who take semesters off to go work in the Ravine Lodge. It's pretty cool. But it was changed to end there so there could be a celebration once it became a more kind of formal thing. Sure. So that changed the route. It actually, surprisingly to me, made it um, about a mile longer because Gorgebrook is long, or about a third, sorry, a third of a mile longer. Gorgebrook's longer than Beaverbrook? Isn't that surprising? That's Beaver, so surprising. Beaverbrook goes straight down. There is not a single switchback in that trail. Wow. So it made it about a third of a mile longer and with the direction going from Robinson Hall to Musilock Ravine Lodge, it added um, an additional 2,000 feet of elevation gain 
Mm -hmm. because otherwise it's a net downhill course because Kinsman Notch is relatively high compared to our elevation here along the Connecticut River. Yep. So for most of the 70s and 80s, it was run on the original route described, Kinsman Notch back to campus. In the 90s and 2000s and 2010s, it was run from campus to the Ravine Lodge so that that celebration could happen. Since 2017, I believe, maybe 18, it has been run from the Ravine Lodge back to campus so that it is easier. Kids are getting soft these days. Kids are getting soft. (laughs) I think from the college's perspective, it probably was a safety thing. Yeah, that makes sense. When the kids have been out there for 24 hours, they are close to campus, not trying to go up Glencliff. Yeah. So I think it makes a lot of sense, but... It posed a dilemma when I was beginning to run this route about whether, um, which direction I should run it. The fastest known time route was established at the time when the outing club did it from Robinson Hall to the Ravine Lodge. So right. that is the route that had been run as the fastest known time. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't clear if I should run it in, and that's how Lucy ran it, right? Because yeah. that was this, that was what was on the fastest known time site. And she's like, well, this is the way I'm going to do it. Yeah. Um, it also was easier for her because she lives right here in Hanover and yep. just get up and go. But it posed a dilemma for me that that necessitated a deeper dive into the history because it made me think, what is the real route, mm-hmm. right? What's the truth? Of course, there is no truth. Yeah. It's just a community tradition. But every and – and this is what Bernie Waugh, um, one of the um, alumni who I talked to, is what he said. He's like, I think he said – Everyone thinks of the traditional route as the one that was there when they were freshmen because that's what the sophomores told them was the route. Sure. Right? And so it only needed one year to become tradition. The institutional memory at these places is short. So there really is no traditional route. So then I went out set out to find the fastest times that had ever been run on any variation of the route. Mm -hmm. And I came upon the legend of Sam Winnebaum and Tom Tomai. So Sam Winnebaum and Tom Tomai were members of the Dartmouth cross-country team, and I actually dug up an incredible photo of both of them racing neck and neck towards the finish of a Dartmouth cross-country course in the late 70s. They were members of the class of 1979, and rather than participate in the normal activities that happen in a senior week when you're about to graduate, they decided that they wanted to run the Dartmouth 50. (laughs) for time for speed had anyone run it for speed up until then oh i forgot to mention one of the best parts bernie waugh this this legend who i've mentioned a couple times now thought it was crazy when i told him i was going to run it but then proceeded to tell me that he tried to quote jog it one time (laughs) but could only make it from robinson hall to glencliff and then he had to walk which made (laughs) me realize that he legitimately ran every single step no. until Glencliff, which I did not do in my record. No. That is insane. That's crazy. I think Bernie Waugh is actually the biggest beast that's ever been on the the uh, Dartmouth 50. Oh, my God. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> what a legend. So, anyway, Sam Winnebaum and Tom Tomai, these cross-country runners, they start at Kinsman Notch, Beaver okay. Brook Trail, because that was tradition in the 70s. Um, I believe they filled water at streams. Mm-hmm. And they had their friends meet them at road crossings occasionally. Sam could only remember getting food at um, the Dartmouth Skiway, but thought he might have had food elsewhere, where they had potato chips and Coke. Mm. 
so. on the FKT board that supported them. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and they did run it in the south southbound direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So there's yeah. 2,000 feet less elevation. Mm-hmm. And Sam was also careful to note that he believes the route has changed dramatically since the. Mm. Appalachian Trail corridor was actually taken over by the U.S. government in the in 1980. Just like general reroutes, general reroutes, and in that 1980 takeover, they zoned like a barrier around the Appalachian Trail that yes. could not be um, modified. Yeah, and in doing so, they had to make negotiations with landowners and reroute the trail in places. So there were a lot of changes that happened in that era. Gotcha. And so he thought that the trail was likely much shorter at that time, but he couldn't say exact by exactly how much. Okay. So um, they ran, he believes they ran the route in um, nine hours and 47 minutes. Wow. Southbound. And he said that they basically ran together until the end when Tom dropped him. And so he thinks Tom finished in 947 and he finished in 957. Gotcha. Ten minutes later. So Sam Winnebaum, also I should note, is probably a guy you guys have heard of. He runs a site called... Uh, gosh, someone else. It's like a shoe review site. I should look it up so I can oh, actually plug him correctly. But it's like Road Trail Run. Okay. Um, wow, it's kind of brutal to get dropped in the last ten minutes. <laughs> Road Trail Run. It's a shoe review site. So that's that's Sam Winnebaum's thing. Okay. Um, yeah, no mercy from Tom Tomai. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so in my head, I'm like, all right, well, that's the time. Yeah. And and this is where the kind of now we'll tie into your kind of comparison question for my effort in my head I had um always thought that I could run the route in less than 10 hours like mm. in the last couple of years when I thought about maybe doing it independent of finding out that they had run it in 947 sure I had actually heard of rumors of Nordic skiers running it in the 90s in the era in the region of 930 wow but I could find no corroboration of that in all the sources that I talked to on the Nordic ski team from that era said they couldn't remember anyone doing that and if they did they just didn't think it was possible sure and this um i didn't circle back to this earlier but how i'd heard of the dartmouth 50 originally was this guy fabian stocek who had run it as an undergrad was one of my ski rivals in college oh um and he is an extremely fit dude and he ran it in like 12 and a half hours when he was an undergrad yeah so i felt like I didn't think it was realistic that other Dartmouth undergrads on the ski team had run three hours faster than Fabian. Yeah, yeah, sure. So anyway, um, the history of the route is deep and rich, but I have to go all the way back to the beginning, which I didn't mention, in that the tradition of long-distance hiking at Dartmouth was actually started much earlier, in like the 1920s. And one of the biggest proponents of long-term hikes and in fact he might have been the first person to ever actually hike the Dartmouth 50 in one go we don't know it's this guy named Sherman Adams who was a class of 1920 graduate and he went on to become the chief of staff for President Eisenhower Mm. so um pretty interesting little connection there yeah but um that's did he because that's before the AT even so does the Dartmouth 50 predate the Appalachian Trail? Again, this is what I'm not sure about. I yeah. think that many of the segments of trail yeah. did exist. Whether they could be linked or not, I'm not sure. Sure. Um, it's funny that when I kind of read about Sherman Adams, um, he called it long-distance walking. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy named David Hook, who's also a Dartmouth alumni, wrote a history of the Dartmouth Outing Club, and that's where I got this information. Cool. 
So um, I got to give David Hook the credit for for this information, and and he'd probably be able to answer these questions a lot better than I than I am able to. Um, but I do think the fact that this was potentially going on as far back as the inception of the Appalachian Trail sure. puts it in a rarefied category of only two other routes that I know of nationally that have been done as standalone routes since that era, which are um, the Hutchiverse, which began efforts in the, or like, you know, there were races between Hutmasters in the, in the 1920s and 30s, and the Mahoosic Traverse, yeah. which was actually the foremost test piece for the hut crews of that era, not the presidential traverse. I dude, when you when you told me that, it blew my mind. I didn't realize the Mahusic Traverse. Like it, it's that like that fact is always stuck in my mind now. I didn't realize there was such a rich history on the Mahusic Traverse. And people need to love that route way more. Oh, it's it deserves some love. Like and, I feel uh, like it's died down compared to sort of like people don't think of it like the Pemi Loop and the Prezi and the Hut Traverse. It'll come back. You think so? I know so. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah I'm, I'm, it will come back. Would you ever consider Mahusic Traverse? Oh, definitely. <laughs> okay, definitely. so what made you decide to, you know, if the fastest time you could find was Beaver Brook South, mm. what made you decide to do sort of the, the, the FKT variation of the route? Good question. Partially because everyone that I knew from my era of Dartmouth Nordic skiers and students had done it from Robinson Hall to the Ravine Lodge. Mm-hmm. So my kind of conception of the route ran in that direction. That was the way that Lucy had run it. Yep. The other way that I thought I might run it is southbound. Mm-hmm. But because that's how it's run by students currently. Yep. I didn't really consider running Beaver Brook because that felt like the one that was kind of most contrived in order to beat an existing record. Sure. Because it has not been run that way since, I think, basically since they ran it in the late 70s, or maybe in the 80s. Yeah. So do you think Beaver Brook's faster than Gorge Brook going up? Um, going up, I would not have said so, having done both trails. Yeah. Because Gorge Brook is very runnable. In fact, yeah, I actually yeah. do think it is slower. Yeah. But I think their time as Sam acknowledged, reflects the fact that the trail was shorter. Sure. And I think we it's important to note that these trails become more technical as they are used more often. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these times that were run in the 20s and 30s, we have to think back to the fact that there was soil there. Yeah. The fact that the trails, at least in the forested segments of New England, are so rocky is because they those rocks have been ero- like exhumed from the soil the soil has been eroded away from around them um and this is anyone who's hiked in new england has kind of seen that where their trail is just a ditch and there is forest uh, alongside you at kind of knee height but you're hiking in a ditch and the trail was of course originally at that higher elevation yeah um well sort of sort of reminds me of like the the sections the less hiked at sections in maine and like the super northern long right. trail where yeah like a lot of those sections even though they're steep there's like it's there's soil there's a lot of dirt and it's not as technical as it's soft yeah it, it's like feels really fun yeah and good and it's like a magical feeling yeah yeah um so anyway i am not sure uh where i was going with that but my route selection basically 
I think, reflected the fact that I felt like going southbound was a cop-out because it's 2,000 feet less. Sure. Going over Beaverbrook felt contrived and aimed at beating a record that I wasn't sure was really realistic of reality anymore. Yeah. Um, and going northbound to Moose Lock Ravine Lodge um, had the greatest meaning to me. Yeah. So that's how I landed on it. That's sweet. And I wanted to run sub 10, and I ran 9.59.18. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> so there you go. I don't know. I don't, that's willpower for you, I guess. Yeah. Would you ever come back to that route, or is that like tied oh. a nice bow? And I had such a good experience on that route. Yeah. That You know, it's funny. About the Prezi Traverse, I've said, you know, I had such a good experience on that route that I don't really want to return to it mm-hmm. because I think I put forward, even though I made some mistakes, took one wrong turn, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I'm really proud of that effort, and I just don't want to dilute it with making it about beating anyone else, sure. proving that I'm better. But I approached the 50 in such a different way that even though I felt like I performed in a similar way, in a, in a good way, that the experience I had out there was really special and it's something that I'd like to have again. So it's something that I could see returning to. Mm-hmm. Um, whether I'll return to it in an era in which I'm able to run faster than I did, I don't know. Sure. But I could honestly see myself returning to it at a later phase in life and experiencing it with the ability that I have at that time. Yeah. And still feeling like it's a really meaningful thing. Yeah. I don't know. I gotta go run the Mahusik first. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool, dude. Uh, man, you got me fired up to do. Like, I I kind of want to go do the fifty, like Beaverbrook South now, just for That'd fun. That'd be cool. That just would like, be sick. Not for time, but just experience. I mean, well, I guess it's a completely different trail, but like to sort of experience what it was like back then in the seventies, yeah. right? There's some kind of, see, and I think you're starting to taste a little bit of the motivation that goes beyond the trying to beat a time, right? Yeah. The kind of, like, thinking back to, like, wow, people have been doing this for almost 50 years now. Mm. Like, there's some motivation in that. Yeah. Well, it helps that there's no way in hell I would ever touch those times on the 50, so. All right, folks. Will sandbagging himself, just like Lucy. He's probably going to go out there and run 850. No. Sandbagging, <laughs> listen, me sand, there's... There's no such thing as a sandbag for me <laughs> under 150 miles. <laughs> <laughs> that is so insane, dude. You live in a different universe than me. Yeah, I know. I'm just like a track runner compared to you. Yeah, sure. Which is hilarious because I think that's the furthest thing from what I am. <laughs> but compared to you, that's what I am. Well, that that state, I'm, my career's over. I'm retired now. No, you're not, dude. I can't do multi-day stuff anymore. School's too busy. I just quit. That's so true, man. That's so true. The debt will wait. I got to run ultras. Uh, um, all right. So what have we not covered on the 50? Um, we haven't talked a whole lot about your actual like game day experience. I know you and sure. I have talked about it a lot, sure. but I think yeah. we've talked about the history quite a bit. Gosh, if anyone's still listening at this point, then I, they deserve to hear about it. So yeah. um, let's talk about it. So I set out to run this record in a specific way, as I mentioned, or run this route, I should say, because um, it was I really tried hard to make it not about the record. Mm-hmm. And um, my good friend Will Peterson met me at the start, 
which was really meant a lot to me. <laughs> I'm serious, and uh, it did. It meant a lot to have you there, and it reflected the way in which I wanted to do this, which was not a kind of like lone hero mm-hmm. way of doing it. Um, so I, but I did want to do it unsupported because I, logistically, it was just easier. I wanted to pack my running pack and or my vest, and just that was it. And so I, I woke up in the morning and I uh, ran a mile to the start, did a couple speeds on the way, nice. the legs woken up. It's five in the morning, or something like that. I think we started at five. I think I might have started at six, or was it five? It was five. I met you at like four fifty. Before cars were out, for sure. Yeah, that even makes it even more impressive the fact that Will met me there at the start. Well, you legend. drove me three hours each way to the long trail. I got to repay you somehow. Oh, no repayment needed. That was fun for me. <laughs> that was um, fun for me too. So anyway, um, I packed Morton gels as my main fuel, which I really like. Yep. They work well for me. Um, and I think the taste is good. The consistency goes down really easily, and they don't upset my stomach. So it's just if any broke, don't fix it. Sure. However, I haven't done that many 50-mile efforts. In fact, I've done exactly one on the Hutchiverse. And I was talking to a good friend of mine who I really look up to, Jeff Colt. Yep. And Jeff has a lot of experience running these long-distance races. He was ninth at Western States this year. He was in third until mile 93 when he had some bad GI distress, but pretty accomplished ultra runner in his yes. own right. And he was like, you know, I think you might really want some real food at the beginning of this effort. And Jeff's from Hanover, I should mention, so he knows this oh, route cool. like the back of his hand. Yeah. Um, and he said that Courtney DeWalter is really into pierogies, hmm. which are these um, – basically like ravioli things from Poland that are just stuffed with salty potatoes, mashed potatoes. And I happen to love pierogies. So I was like, this is great. (laughs) And so I went to the local grocery store, the Hanover Co-op the night before the race, and I bought some frozen pierogies and I just left them on the counter to defrost. Didn't even heat them up? Didn't even heat them up. Well, because I actually did. I did a test. I cooked them. Yeah. But then they became really tough and mm. chewy. So I didn't cook them, sure. which we're going to circle back to while wow, that might have been a very bad decision in a second. Um, so I packed those pierogies in a plastic bag. I had 10 of them. I was going to eat three per hour for the first three hours. Then I was going to switch to four Morton gels per hour okay. for the last, whatever, seven hours. I was planning on 10 hours. I only brought enough food for 10 hours. Yeah. I figured if I was going slower than that, then whatever. I would get through on willpower. Yeah. So... Um, that's about, I was aiming to have about 100 grams of carbohydrates per hour, which is, you know. It's aggressive. It's aggressive, but based on all the science that's been coming out, it's kind of right in the range. Cyclists are doing up to 120 these days. Yeah. Um, I'd been experimenting with it this summer, and I it felt pretty good. Yep. I was just feeling better after workouts and long runs that I fueled in. Um, so I felt confident I could do it but I had never run with eating pierogies so that was a huge unknown and uh, in hindsight a kind of ridiculous roll of the dice I just like fully trusted Jeff <laughs> and I was like if he says this then it must be good sure so I um, started running and the pierogies went down really well for the first hour but then they were in one bag and they eventually just became this 
amalgam because they hadn't been cooked, right? So they're just like raw dough <laughs> with potatoes in them. Yeah. And so then I had to basically just, I would reach into my vest pocket into this plastic bag that had the pierogies. Thank goodness they were in a plastic bag. And just scoop out a handful of dough, raw dough and potatoes and just <laughs> shove it down my gullet. And I had to do this because I didn't have enough gels to switch to earlier than my planned time. Oh, no. Um, ended up being fine miraculously sure um but by the time those three hours had gone by i was like thank goodness i didn't bring more of those (laughs) (laughs) so pierogies remains to be seen whether they're the best snack i think they would do better if you were supported and they weren't getting smashed in your vest the whole time yeah Yeah, so anyway that's my take on pierogies um i started out the run with a pretty aggressive pace um i had actually paced andy mcgibbon who had the previous fastest known time on this record he had mm-hmm. run like 11 20 something i think sounds right Eleven twenty-seven, maybe um i should check that but um so i had a sense for his times and i i had looked them up because i was just curious to kind of get a sense of how far i should go and or how fast i should go at the beginning mm-hmm. and i quickly kind of just didn't really use his splits because i just wanted to run my own pace yeah and so running pretty fast at the start felt pretty good and uh yeah i ran that first pavement mile quite fast and then ran really steady up out over velvet rocks and basically all the way to the top of moose mountain which i described earlier as kind of a continuous 10 mile uphill like there are some ups and downs in there but you're just kind of steadily going up the whole time Mm -hmm. and so that's a section that i really wanted to bring some energy towards because it's kind of it actually is like one of the harder sections. Yeah. Um, so uh, I arrived at the top of Musalak, or excuse me, top of Moose Mountain South Summit just about the time the sun was rising. It took me like an hour and a half to get there or something. And I was just super psyched. I was like feeling good. I was thinking about all the friends that I had made on this trail. I was thinking about my friend Peter Howe, who had met me at the top of Musalak. I was thinking about you. Um, who I had just seen that morning, but also our memories on other trails around Hanover and getting on the long trail earlier this year. I was thinking about um, my good friends Evan DeChair and Keith Kantak, who skied at Williams with me and then both did their graduate work here at Dartmouth. And my first run in Hanover was with them Mm -hmm. from Aetna to Lyme on the Appalachian Trail, which was the very section I was on at that moment. Um, So... I was just reflecting on all these people and just feeling really grateful. And that kind of set the tone for the rest of the run where I just, anytime I kind of got to a low point, I would just reflect on the fact that how lucky am I that I can be out here and be running. And I have all these people. And when I was feeling really down, I would, or like just really tired. I was never really feeling like down. Sure. But uh, I would just imagine them cheering for me. And that was a huge motivator because yeah. I, I really know, I really feel strongly that the friends I have are really great friends and they like wanted to see me succeed out there for no record, but just for myself, Yeah, you know? And so that was a, that was a deep motivation for me. And, and I felt really good through the first half um, and even up and over cube. Um, and then coming down cube was, was I was starting to feel like a little bit tired um, and there was like some people doing trail magic there at 25A for the through hikers. And I had put my headphones in. I didn't want to use headphones the whole time because I kind of wanted some to like just have some space to reflect and think yeah, for yeah. the first half. And um, 
anyway, so I put the headphones in at the top of Cube, and so when I was coming down to the pavement, I saw the trail people, and I was like, all right, well, I guess I got to go fast now because I'm one of those people that's, like, running on the Appalachian Trail. I feel like there's, like, a certain... Sometimes people see you running on the trail, and they're like, oh, you're running. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, ah, oh, well, I got to live up to that now. Of course. So I like, ran on the pavement pretty fast, and then I got to this section that Lucy talked about, which is between 25A and the base of Glencliff, which is just torturous. It's like never quite feels like you're going up, but you're never going down. It's the Ore Hill section. Exactly. Yeah, good memory. Yeah, um, that place. <laughs> really hard. And this was also the wettest summer ever recorded mm-hmm. in um, this part of New England. So it was super muddy, and I was just... My feet were getting stuck or I was having to take circuitous ways around and I was desperately trying to just run. My goal was to just run this whole section yeah. because it is runnable yeah. in theory. But I was just, anytime I get bogged down in the mud, I would just start walking and it was just really hard to motivate to keep going. Yeah. And so I got to um, 25C, um, which is the, it goes 25A, you cross another road, but it's not important. 25C, and then 25, and then you go up Glencliff. Yeah. And so I got to 25C, and I just put my hands on my knees, and I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I was, for the 10-hour time, I felt like I needed to get to the base of Musilock with two hours to go mm-hmm. to get up and over Musilock. And it was starting to look like I wasn't going to make that. And so... I was just like, you know what? That's okay. I'm out here for the experience. It's not about um, the record. And that was actually really helpful. I was like, I wasn't feeling down. I wasn't like pissed at myself, which I might have been in other scenarios. I was like, you know what? This is okay. But then as my hands are on my knees, this song comes on, on this playlist. I made a specific playlist for this run that was all the songs uh, that I had shared with friends in the Upper Valley. Um, it's on my Spotify. It's called The Upper Valley Years, if you're yep. interested. And there's this song from that my friend Peter Howe showed me. We went on a canoe trip this year where we canoed from the source of the Connecticut River all the way back to Hanover. That's pretty sick. Um, which is really cool. Where I, is it? Um, it's, it's, so it's actually really interesting. The northern border of New Hampshire is the watershed boundary. Oh, so cool. you have to go all the way up to Pittsburgh, New Hampshire. Wow. Um, and start at the wow. 4th Connecticut Lake, which is a chain of lakes. And you have to run with your canoe. We actually think we might have set the land speed record for a canoe mile. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's a story for another time. Yeah, yeah. But there's a song we listened to on the way to our put-in for that trip. And it was called Reel Around the Sun by Bill Whelan. And it's in this, like, Irish st- like step dance musical I've never seen called uh, River Dance. Okay. A lot of people apparently have seen this growing up. I haven't seen it. I haven't. Anyway, the song is straight life force energy. <laughs> when that thing came on, I was like, all right, I'm going to run sub 10. <laughs> Literally, no matter what happens, I'm going to run sub 10. And I just started running. And I like ran all the way down to 25, which is a pretty technical section. Yeah. Um, got to the bottom of this 4,000 foot climb to the top of Musilock, just kept running. Just wow. kept running the whole way. And I thought of Bernie Waugh, who said that he had jogged every single freaking step from Hanover to Glencliff. And I was like, that guy's a savage. <laughs> I've got to live up to Bernie Waugh. <laughs> and so I just started, like, jogging wherever I could. And, and truth be told, when I got to um, Glencliff, I was like, you know what? I really can't jog this, right? It's steep. It's technical. Mm. It's hard. So I just settled into what I felt like was my sustainable pace. And I'm like, you know what? I might not break 10. 
in reality, but I'm just gonna do my pace. Mm-hmm. And my tape pace turned out to be pretty good, which is, which is cool. Um, and I made it to the top in like 20 minutes faster than I expected to. Wow. And I got to the top and I had like 33 minutes to get down. And the fastest I'd ever run it, um, one time I ran the time trial up and then turned around and ran it down pretty fast. So yeah. it wasn't like a true downhill time trial, but it was relatively fast. I think it was like 27 minutes or something, 26 mm-hmm. minutes. And so I was like, I've just run 47 miles. <laughs> I need to run within five <laughs> minutes of the fastest time I've ever run down this thing. And I met my friend Peter Howe up there who had given me that Life Force Energy song. Yeah. And I just gave him a big hug. And I was like, hey, man, I'm kind of in the zone right now. And he's like, I totally understand. You don't need to speak. So he just followed behind me. And we ran down. And I ran as fast as I could down that thing, which is definitely not the fastest I've ever (laughs) run down it. My legs were pretty tired at that point. Mm -hmm. But I just knew that every second counted. Like, I knew this was going to be tight. And the ultimate hilarity of this whole route was when we got to one of these little log bridges that's a single log wide yeah. with like a handrail. Yeah, Very yeah. common out here. Um, there was a group of high school girls that were about to enter the bridge. And so I yelled, coming up behind ya! <laughs> Hoping that they would move. And all of them moved except one. So this girl got gets on the bridge. And I'm like, oh, she's on the bridge, damn it. And then, you're not going to believe this, as she's on the bridge, she gets surrounded by a swarm of butterflies. So she's like, oh my gosh, look at the butterflies. And I'm like, I don't have time for this shit. And so then I jump onto the bridge, grab the railing, swing my body out over the stream around her, grab the other railing. So I basically have her in an embrace right now and then continue going. She probably feels like she just got assaulted. And then I just am like, I'm sorry. I like shout back, I'm so sorry. And then just continue running and ran literally full tilt sprint for the last half mile yeah. like full on sprint and i finished with 42 seconds to spare with when my hand touched the moose locker Ravine lodges when i finished um it was an epic experience dude that's incredible yeah and one of the cool parts was i have mentored a bunch of undergraduates here at dartmouth through my work as a as a graduate student in the earth science department mm-hmm. and two of my students who I've mentored were working in the ravine lodge oh, cool. and so they met me there and brought me food and uh, I was able to take a shower and it just kind of like was a cherry on top to an already really wonderful experience absolutely man that sounds like such a great experience yeah so should we end it there I think that's a good unless you think there's anything we've missed no I think that's good people got the story they came for at the end they got the gossip they came for about fastest known time absolutely I'll be blacklisted for life um, don't associate yourself with me Will you know just I, I, I'm I, telling the listeners Will, Will the, the views reflected on this podcast are not reflective of Will Peterson Craft Sportswear do not drop him um, no craft draw me do it I dare you <laughs> hyperlate do not drop him because Actually, I need yeah. that sweet sweet 15% off code from this <laughs> podcast yeah true use code from the back country for 15% off <laughs> uh, yeah please don't draw me hyperlate <laughs> I mean you too craft I, I, I like but no uh, and it, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said on this podcast so uh, so people can take that for what they want <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for coming, man. I'm I'm glad to see you. Good to see you in person. Definitely.